Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 395. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 395 you're listening to. My guest today is Daniel Rowland, who's head of strategy and partnerships at Lander, co-owner of Immersive Mixers, professor at MTSU, and of course, engineer who's worked with Nine Inch Nails, David Foster, Disney, Pixar, Star Wars, Marvel, DC Comics, a host of many, many clients. And he is our guest today. We're going to talk all about his journey in the world of audio. And of course, we're going to talk about his role at Lander. And I'm going to play devil's advocate to some extent there. So you're going to get a little bit of that. And we're going to have a great conversation. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Daniel Rowland coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about building a studio and the things that you might want to keep in mind when doing so. So everything I'm about to tell you is by no means meant to dissuade you from the idea of building a studio. I'm at a point right now where that's the last thing I want to do. However, many of you are not at the same spot in life that I am at. I'm going to give you some tips and ideas to think about that I would use if I were to do it all over again, knowing what I know now. Hopefully this helps you out. And, you know, some of the stuff you're going to know, some of the stuff you're going to go, oh, all right. Yeah, didn't think about that. So I hope whatever I tell you now is helpful. Okay, so... If you're going to do a studio, the number one thing I would consider if I were to do it all over again would be whether or not I'm going to buy the building or lease the building. Hands down, I would buy the building if I could afford to. Because when you buy the building, you're buying an asset. You're buying something that you can sell down the line that's going to probably increase in value. So that is my first piece of advice. However, not all of you are in that position and you want to get up and running, so leasing a building is the answer. So let's say I was going to lease a building. First thing I would do is I would get in touch with a commercial real estate agent because a commercial real estate agent is going to have their finger on the pulse of what's going on in the area that you want to lease. They're going to know which buildings have been sitting vacant for a long time, whose landlords are probably going to want to cut a deal. Uh, They're also going to know which buildings are problematic and You know, if they have been sitting around, why have they been sitting around for so long? Are there, you know, environmental issues around the building? I know we're getting deep here, right? So that's the first person I would employ. Once you get into a contract with a landlord, I don't know if this is really necessary. And some of you might know better than I am. So if you know better, please let me know. Matt at workingclassaudio.com. You can always tell me, hey, Matt, that's not right. But I would consider a real estate attorney in that equation. Now, maybe the real estate, commercial real estate agent can help you avoid some catastrophes, but you know, hey, it wouldn't hurt just to have a real estate attorney look over what it is you're about to sign, just to make sure that you're doing your due diligence. This is all foundational stuff that you really need to consider even before you even think about moving forward. Okay, so those are the things I would consider. And One of the things that I hear about all the time, but I've never experienced personally, is that you can get a landlord of a commercial building that you're about to lease. Sometimes they will pay for the build out and they will factor that into your rent long term. So in other words, they'll get their crew to help you build the studio inside, but they will tack that on to the monthly rent that you're going to pay over the next 5, 10, 20 years, however long your lease is going to be. So that's something to ask your real estate agent about, something to ask your real estate attorney about, because that could be really great. Now, friends, don't cut corners. I mean, if you are a qualified electrician, do the electrical on your own if you can. But if you're not, hire a pro, do the electrical right. And if there's plumbing involved, hire a plumber, do it right. Make sure that all that infrastructure shit, make sure that's all tackled so that you don't have to even think twice about it. And if you hire professionals, generally they're gonna do it up to code. Who wants to do it wrong and have the place burn down or flood, right? Okay, let's see, what else would we think about here? Oh, 
Transparency with the landlord, obviously, you are going to not hide the fact that you are building a studio. Who in their right mind would get into a long-term lease with a landlord and tell them something different? Like, you know, oh, we're only going to sell pottery out of here or, you know, do something other than what you intend on doing. Just tell them straight up, because if there's a problem with that landlord, they may have a history with recording studio owners and they hate them. That's the last kind of relationship you want to get involved in. So be, tr be transparent about all of that. The other thing you might want to think about is, and, and once again, this is, you know, a real estate attorney type potential question is whether or not you are going to file permits to do what you're doing, because the last thing you want is you're halfway through the build and some looky-loo building inspector shows up and says, oh, what are y'all doing here? Oh, you're building a studio where you're building permits and then shut the whole thing down. Do it right. Okay, so you're going to do this studio. You've got your real estate thing figured out. You've got your build figured out. But the other questions you need to ask yourself is, how is the structure of this studio from a business perspective going to work? Are there partners? Do you have a business entity? Are you a limited liability company? Are you a sole proprietor? Are you a, an S corporation? All these things need to get answered up front. And the other thing that needs to get answered up front is, do you have a business plan? How are you going to run this studio? You don't want to do the whole build it and hope they'll come situation and spend a ton of money because, you know, quite honestly, that's part of what I did. And that's part of why I failed. I didn't have a business plan. I just dove right in. So make sure you have a business plan. Make sure you know if you're going to have partners, what the agreement is. You know, what if you get involved with two or three other people and one of them decides they want to leave? What do the other two partners do? Do they buy them out? What if that person owns the Neve console you intend on putting into this place? Make sure these business arrangements are thought out up front. Remember, transparency, clarity is the key to doing this. Also, you know, I mentioned Neve console. Uh, make sure that however you are building the studio, make sure that whatever gear you intend on putting in there can make it in there, right? You don't want to buy a Neve console that you can't even fit through the door or get into the control room. That would be a major mistake. So something to factor in there. Remember, when you're doing your business plan, there are going to be expenses, electrical, garbage, internet, taxes, uh, yearly rent increases from the landlord. All of these things need to be factored in. You can't just say, oh, this is our rent and we have to make this much to cover the nut and then this much extra is gravy. You need to factor in not only the rent, but all of these other things that I mentioned. Insurance. That's another thing to be thinking about. Not just gear insurance, but uh, business insurance. Because if somebody comes into your studio and they trip, you know, over a mic cable and bust their face into the glass and break the glass, I'm trying to make up the worst case scenario, they may want to just sue you, right? So you have to have business liability insurance and shop around, get quotes, let people know exactly what it is you're doing. Once again, that transparency thing so that they can get you the product, the insurance product that you need. Okay, so we've got utilities, we've got insurance, uh, we've got our things set up with the landlord. We've built out a studio, we have a business plan, we know what our, we're gonna, how we're gonna work with our partners. Let's talk about the gear. So when, we, when we're thinking about the gear, we wanna think about the workflow of the studio. What kind of work are you gonna do? Are you gonna be a voiceover studio? Is it a tracking studio? So if it's a tracking studio, what do people need when they track? Headphones, headphone boxes. All of these things are factors when you're deciding what gear to buy. If you're just gonna be a simple overdub studio, you probably don't need 24 ins and outs of IO for your converters, right? Why would you spend the money on that if people are just doing, you know, one to eight tracks of recording at any given time, right? Think about that. Think about the space that you have and what the ultimate use case is for it. We all know that most people like to mix it in their own environments. Uh, there's no need to go and spend a, a crap ton of money on a giant API or Neve if you're only going to be doing a couple tracks at a time with small groups, right? Don't overbuy in areas that have nothing to do with the clientele you're going to have. It just doesn't make any sense. Now, you've got all this figured out, but who's going to run the studio? Are you the chief engineer? Are you also going to be the chief booking person or manager of the studio? Probably not. 
So that's something to consider in your business plan. Who's going to manage the studio? Who's going to run the books? Who's going to book the calendar? Who is going to keep the place operational? And how much are you going to pay them? What is the salary range of what you're going to pay those people? So everything that we've talked about has been focused on leasing a building. But all of those things also should be factored into buying a building equally as much. And let's say you're going to do all of this, but you're going to do it in a house, in a residential neighborhood. Once again, leasing or buying, you're probably not going to lease a house to do this in. That's, I don't know, that just doesn't seem like the average landlord with a house to rent is going to want that use case for their rental. So it, let's say you're buying a house and you're going to put it in, you're going to put a studio in there. Totally cool. Obviously that's been done a million times. Uh, I mean, God, go to Nashville, right? All these little houses that are studios. It's a pretty typical thing. However, what if you're not in Nashville? What if you are in Phoenix? What if you are in Oxford or somewhere in Scotland? You need to find out what the zoning laws are where you plan on buying this house to put a studio in because you may have some neighbors that are not up for that, a city government that's not up for that. And the last thing you want to do is go buy a house, build a studio, and then realize, oh, we can't do this here. That's That would be just a colossal financial mistake, right? So don't do that. So there's lots of things to consider here, and I just scratched the surface, and I hope that these tips are helpful for you. But I think the number one thing in all of this that I kept repeating, and I hope that you picked up on it, was transparency. Clarity with people. Telling them what it is you are intending to do. Because if you try to bullshit people, it's going to come back and bite you in the ass later. It really will. So you're going to build a studio, tell the landlord. You're going to you know, put a studio in a residential area, find out what the rules are and tell people what your intentions are so that somebody at least can raise their hand and go, <clears throat> excuse me, um, that's not allowed here. You probably don't want to do that and spend a bunch of your money, right? So those are the things to consider. If you've got other tips and you want to add to the pile, please email me, matt at workingclassaudio.com. I would love to hear from you and hear of your experiences, good or bad, and your suggestions on building a studio. That's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. 
As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button, at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Daniel Rowland here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Awesome. Great to be here, Matt. Great to have you. Before we started recording here, I was mentioning that I had heard you on Bobby Osensky's podcast, one of my favorite podcasts, also who's been a guest on this show. And I was really intrigued by everything about that interview. Number one, your journey which we'll get into. And number two, I was really intrigued by the aspect that Lander plays in, not only in your life, but just it, it opened my eyes actually to a little more, I guess you could say that I, I could now see, oh, Lander does more than just this AI mastering thing, which I also want to talk about. But let's start with where you grew up. Yeah, man. I grew up in Charleston, South Carolina. I'm about as far away from there as I could get right now in LA, but yeah, my jam was, you know, started playing guitar in, in high school when I was about 15, 14, something like that. And that's kind of how I got in the music industry is just gigging, doing little, you know, in cover bands and things like that in this little town for tourists, basically. I still have family there. Still, if, if you have never been, Charleston's an amazing city. Maybe not the best place to build a music career, though some people have, but I eventually <laughs> left and went to college. But, you know, in my case, I didn't go to college till I was a little bit older, till I was about 26. And I went through and got a master's degree in bachelor's and master's in music technology. And that's kind of what got me in. Huh. So tell me about music in the household growing up. Was there anybody that played an instrument? How did you get into music? What was the inspiration growing up there? Yeah, no, none of my family is very, I mean, my grandfather was uh, like headed a big band in Charleston for, for years back in the forties. And my dad, I guess, played trumpet, but he was out of it by the time I was around, I think. He was, he was doing other things by then. So no, man, it was really just, it was like for, I mean, it was probably the case for a lot of people. I, I was in high school. I was super shy, right? I was I a lot of anxiety as a kid going through puberty and, and all my friends were learning how to play guitar. So I kind of wanted to be cool. So I figured I would learn how to play guitar too. And that was pretty much it. I mean, I obviously I was passionate about music and loved the Beatles and Zeppelin and, you know, I kind of came up on classic rock and stones. But it was just transparently to kind of fit in. But immediately, once I started playing guitar, I took to it very fast. Like I got better than everybody else in a few months. So obviously it was something, there was something there for me. And I just fell in love with it, man. And I don't get to play as much. I have tons of guitars and I love them. I don't play them as much as I, I would like to these days because of the business side of things. But, but yeah, man, that's where I kicked off. You say you didn't start college until later? Yeah. What were you doing leading up to that? I was just kind of happy at that time. From about 15 to 25, 26, just playing in bars three or four nights a week and managing a grocery store. I mean, that's what I was doing at that area of my life. Yeah, it was just, I wasn't wow. trying to record albums, really. I mean, I wasn't into music technology at all at that point. It wasn't even a passion of mine. I mean, I had a PA and that's about the extent of my music technologies. It's interesting how once I went to school, it kind of flipped a switch for me for my passion for computers and tech and all of that stuff. Prior to that, I had not done that. I was a just a guitar player touring up and down the East Coast a little bit, not even that much, working in a frozen food section in a grocery store. Crazy. Wow. How life has changed for you since. Yeah, I know. So whenever anybody, you know, and I, I as we've chatted about, I'm a professor as well. And whenever my students kind of lament how little they know at the age that they are, right? They might, maybe it's a student that has gone to college a little bit later and they're 24, 25, or even closer to 30. I'm just like, man, you have no, you're great. You're doing good. You know so much more than I knew at that age. Don't sweat it. There's always more to learn. So what did you study when you went to school? Tell me about that part of your life. Yeah, man, I went to like 26. I was like, okay, I'm either going to rehab or I'm going to college. So I went to college. <laughs> seriously, like I was just partying way too hard. It was like a medium-sized fish in a very small pond. 
So I went to University of North Carolina at Asheville because I had found that they had a bachelor's of science in recording arts, effectively, you know, music technology. It was kind of a liberal arts degree with a little bit of physics and recording and lots of music, kind of a general music degree tucked in there as well. Asheville is another amazing city that I just kind of randomly stumbled into. And that's kind of where I got my life on track. Before that, I was aimlessly careening around, basically finished with that degree and got a job doing some AV install stuff, because if you go to school for music technology and for recording, it's it can be a good idea for some people. It's not a good idea for others, but rarely do you come out ready to go work in a professional studio. And I certainly wasn't, even though I was somewhat knowledgeable. So I ended up going to grad school for it as well. So another three years for a master's of fine arts in recording technology at Middle Tennessee State, just outside of Nashville, which I've, I've been a teacher there now for 15 years. I mean, I was a teacher while I was going to school. So I came into the industry totally backwards, man. Like I started kind of guitar player, then I went to seven years of college, and then I started to work on more of the high-level projects after I got out of school. Is it accurate to say that you started to transition out of guitar, not out of guitar, but more towards production? A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I've again, I still play guitar and a lot of stuff, but I, I definitely fell in love with the computer, fell in love with software and virtual instruments and, you know, digital technology. And I got tons of analog stuff too, still, of course, but, but that really is what really piqued my interest. And I've been a, a fanatic about that stuff ever since. I always ask this because I kind of went through it myself and that is from drummer to engineer and that transition to it. So for you, from guitar player to engineer or producer, whatever you want to call sure. it, yeah. your feelings towards that, did you have any regrets or kind of like, oh, I wish I could <laughs> do this, but I really like this. Any thoughts about that? Of course. And I still have regrets all the time, right? Like I walk around my house. I mean, I've got my, anybody who's been to the studio and I'm in West Hollywood in, in LA, I've just got this house that's a shrine to musical instruments and I don't get to play them as nearly as much as I want to, as I alluded to before, because of all this other stuff, right? You get into, there's only so many hours in a day. If you want to be a great engineer, you really have to devote, as you know, devote a lot of time to that or a producer, or if you want to do the business side of things, you want to get into web three or teach, you can't, can't do it all. So absolutely. Like I, I do, I wish my chops were kind of what they used to be. And it's always kind of on my radar to spend more time with that. But man, it hasn't, hasn't happened. <laughs> so it's an interesting thing. What you just said, just talking about there's so many hours in the day and we only have one lifetime and the choices that we make, it's like every decision you make to get involved with something that could lead you down a path to, you know, like when I got involved in, in creating this podcast, it's like, I didn't imagine I'd be like almost eight, nine, 10 years later down the road doing this and it's had its rewards, but it's like guitar playing. I'm sure that there's a part of you that really sees other guitar players out there playing professionally and thinking, Ugh. what if I had stuck with that or kills me? Yeah. I, you know, I see the same thing. I watch a lot of drummers on YouTube and just floored by the immense amount of talent out there. And I think, I don't know if that would have been my the correct path for me or not, but I tried it and grew bored with it and wanted to just do what we're doing now in terms of yeah. audio. So what was the driving decision for you to get involved in production? Why did you start to gravitate away from the guitar for that? Well, it was just kind of an extension of the guitar. I mean, I as I was learning Pro Tools and can, fell completely in love with Ableton Live in the early days of Ableton, I guess back in Ableton 3, something like that, it was really... I was like, oh, well, I can take my guitar rig that I have and I can compartmentalize it inside the computer. But wait, if I do that, then I can do all this other stuff. And it just kind of like became this rabbit hole that I went down off of kind of digitizing my guitar system at the time and getting deep into MIDI programming and all that kind of stuff. And that's actually kind of what was the doorway to get me into the industry on the professional level because I met Adrian Ballou and he was trying to do the same thing. He was like, man, I tour with 70 guitar pedals and racks and, you know, all this stuff that you wasn't really tenable to do anymore in the 80s and 90s, maybe, but not so much nowadays. So I came on board with him to downsize his guitar system. I wasn't his producer at that time. I wasn't his audio engineer. I was just that. Again, that fiddling as a guitar player on the computer is opened a big door for me. And I've done that for some other artists as well since, of course. Okay. So you were with Adrian for a bit of time, weren't you? A long time. Yeah. Okay. I lived in his house for like five years. So we were connected at the hip because I built his, ended up building out his studio and uh, there was an apartment attached to that. I moved out. We were touring so much 
internationally. I mean, we came out to LA for months to work with Nine Inch Nails at periods of time, so it made no sense for me to have my own apartment. So I ended up moving into the studio apartment attached to his place forever. But we worked together for seven or eight years and still chat regularly. And I'm actually headed to Nashville to go do some crazy sound design stuff with him here in the next month or so, which will be cool. I I miss him. He's one of the most talented people I've ever worked with, hands down. How does a relationship like that build from, hey, we're interested in kind of these similar concepts. Why don't you come and help me do this? Like, I guess it's kind of a crass question, but does someone like Adrian Ballou just have the means to just hire somebody to focus on that aspect of his technical operation to make you part of a team. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it was, it wasn't a team. I mean, it was me and him basically, even from the start, he had an engineer, I think at that point, which is who actually introduced me to to Adrian, this guy named Saul Zanana, who's, who's an amazing artist, producer, all that kind of stuff. But yeah, you know, it's like, like a lot of things. I wasn't an expert at that time, right? I was still kind of figuring stuff out on my own. So it was you know, getting your foot in the door, figuring out how to design the system for him. You know, he, yes, he absolutely was paying me at the time, which was cool, but I was working, you know, as we all do way more hours than I was getting paid for because I was trying to figure stuff out and invent things on my own and build stuff in Max MSP and blah, blah, blah. Things I was decent at, but not amazing. And then it's just trust, man. It's just making sure you deliver and do what you say you're going to do. And that opened up as we became friends. It was like, okay, I'm also an audio engineer, obviously. So I started doing a little engineering and that involved rebuilding the studio, like I said, and just redesigning that. I tell my students this a lot and you probably do as well. It's like, be confident in putting forth ideas. If you have a rapport with an artist, right? And you kind of know how far you can go with them as far as commenting on what they're doing, adding of your own stuff and all that kind of stuff. And that's what I was doing. I was engineering, but I was also kind of producing at the same time with him. And he started to really trust me in that regard. And then we eventually became co-producers on everything and partners. It was kind of a rambling explanation of that, but it really was just baby steps from like as far down you can get on the ladder up to being equals. And it's just took, took with him years because he's, he's worked with everybody, right? I mean, if you think about Brian Eno and Trent Reznor and David Bowie and all these people, so he's just a wealth of knowledge, but is used to experimenting in the studio. So thank God he was super open-minded to anything I would put forth because he could have totally shut me down on that, but he's not. He's just a really genuinely awesome guy. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. And I guess my question is wondering about the financial means, because if you're talking about like somebody like, I don't know, Billie Eilish or a Madonna yeah. or something, you know, somebody like <laughs> right. that, you Different know, story. can just be like, oh, I'm going to get this person to do this and this person to do this. Yep. But typically no. players, and obviously, you know, Adrian Ballou played a sizable role in King Crimson, but folks like him that play with other people, it makes me wonder, it's like, well, are they surviving well enough that they can bring people right. in like yourself and, and do stuff like that? Yeah, it's interesting. It's hard, right? As an independent artist, and you know, he's a combination of a sideman, frontman, indie artist, all of that stuff, right? To be honest, it's one of the reasons it was like he was he was able to pay me, yeah, but he doesn't have a team around him. His wife is his manager, Martha, who's awesome. And it was, from my perspective, I would have probably done it for free, right? Because it was kind of my entry point into the industry. (laughs) And I was happy. It was cool that I was getting paid. Again, I worked 10 times more hours than I was getting paid for. It's one of the reasons I moved into his place because we were, A, working together so much, and B, I could see for myself, he knows everybody. He's great. He's so generous with introducing me to people and calling me an equal and all this kind of stuff. And even though I wasn't, it was worth moving into his house. And a big part of my thing at that time, and still is, to be honest with you, is living meagerly (laughs) so that I can take advantage of every opportunity that comes my way, even if there's not a huge financial reward. And I was older at the time. This is, I was 33, 34 when I was first working with Adrian. So, I mean, I, it's tough to say, okay, I'm going to go live in a basement and not make a ton of money in the hopes that these are going to unlock opportunities. They're going to let me level up in my career, but they totally did. But he's not somebody, no, he wasn't able to pay me like a hundred grand a year or something to help him, obviously, right? Right, No independent artist really is going to be able to do that. But it all worked out in in the end for both of us, I think. We ended up getting involved in a lot of stuff that allowed us to level up career-wise, financially, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I'm sure that you learned a ton from him. Oh, yeah. About about so many things. Yeah. He's, again, he's like the most creative person I've ever met. It's just constant, whether it's art or it's music or it's, I mean, anything. It's just, you could you could give him a, a ball of yarn and he'll turn it into some amazing something, you know what I mean? Or probably an instrument as well. So I came more with the modern understanding of technology and the current plugins and the current tools. And he came with just this massive creativity, but it's this massive history of seeing the music industry grow 
on the tech side because his whole thing has been technology over his career and using and more often abusing technology to come up with original sounds so he could find his voice. So I learned a ton from him just on that, just like using tech to do things that wasn't intended. I mean, the number of times that we did that and I learned from him how to break things and how to approach technology with a different view of other than what it was intended for was just invaluable, man. And then going and working with Trent Reznor and learning he does the same thing. That's that's why he and Adrian connect so well and getting all of his insights on that. He was super generous with his time and knowledge. Like I've just been very lucky to run into cats like that that have given me opportunities. Tell me about noise. Yeah. So this is interesting. So I was a user, like a lot of people probably listening to this are, of music technology. I was not a creator of music technology. And Adrian and I were staying in Amsterdam for a couple of months working with the Metropole Orchestra, who were doing one of Adrian's albums, orchestral, in a live performance. And we were doing a studio recording for that. And we were in a whiskey bar and ran into this guy, Nick Mueller, who I still work with today as a developer, who's a mobile app guy. We started riffing on ideas about things that we would like to see exist. This is 14 years ago, was super into the iPad, super into multi-touch effects processors and all the stuff that people were doing that hasn't been done on a desktop, obviously, because it's a different interface. So yeah, we founded this company called Noise with Adrian. And we created a couple of products, one of which is like a chaos pad on steroids that we wanted to exist, which is a multi-touch effects processor. And then we took, uh, Adrian and I produced three or 400 songs and we did an album that never plays the same way twice. So it's like this audio visual experience where the graphics change when you touch them, you can save art, but also the music comes at you in kind of a semi-randomized fashion where things are chopped up and smaller. They're not necessarily full length songs. If you hear a song, it might come back with a different guitar solo or lyrics or whatever. And it was just this kind of interactive art project. So that was noise, and we created some fun stuff. The goal wasn't to make millions of dollars, obviously. It was to do fun, artistic things that we would actually like to engage with. And it went pretty well. And that was really my entry into music technology on the creation side, right? Mm. As somebody who was advising the developers on what to build. And, you know, that took me to South by Southwest to present those apps maybe nine years ago. And that's where I met Lander. They met me at South by. So it was a pretty interesting progression of, okay, touring as an engineer starting to kind of advise on some apps and then having a, a startup approach me about doing the same thing for them. A little bit reminiscent of Brian Eno's Bloom app on the iPad. Yeah, Bloom Bloom's great. Like one of the super early generative-ish things. This was more like fully complete songs that we had recorded that were in a semi-randomized weighted engine that would come at you. So it was almost like, I don't even know, like chat roulette meets iTunes or something like that. A very kind of a bizarre thing. But man, I used to love Bloom for sure. So you worked with Adrian, but you continue to work with them here and there. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. And less so these days because I, I moved out of Nashville to LA. I mean, I'm still part-time in Nashville, but most of the time in Los Angeles now. So we're not together as much. And I'll still master his albums just because I love his music. And one of my former students is now his engineer. So Miles Fuqua, who's amazing. So like I'll advise him on things that we used to do and that kind of stuff. But for the most part, we don't work together that much anymore outside of just kind of catching up with each other, unfortunately, because yeah, I, I miss it. But it's just, again, back to that hours in the day thing, right? <laughs> it's only so many. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as Check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. 
There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. Now, you're also teaching at Middle Tennessee State University in TSU. Yeah. Are you doing that virtually? Yeah, I, I used to teach. I've taught at a few schools, like the Art Institute's taught at Belmont, mostly in person. MTSU, I taught in person for maybe five years. And then I'd started, gosh, now 15 years ago, an online education platform where I could teach people in groups and take control of their desktop and show them Pro Tools and tuning and Ableton and all that kind of stuff. And because I'd been doing that, I started to tour a lot with Adrian, so I couldn't go to class and teach anymore, right? It didn't work if I'm in Japan or something like that. So because I had experience teaching remotely, they allowed me to transition into a full-time remote position. So I've been completely remote there for about 10 years. That's amazing. It's great. And there's been times where, you know, I've flown back every couple of weeks to do stuff in person. But now, honestly, especially post-pandemic, everybody's pretty much acclimated to remote education. And there's certain things that don't work as well, obviously, teaching remotely that I think are important for you to be in person for. But a lot of stuff I think actually works better. I can cover way more information on, let's say, Pro Tools teaching remotely with all the tools that I have for that than I can in a classroom where I'm walking around to each individual student. So it's it's been super effective. And yeah, now it's been, gosh, about a decade of doing that. Yeah, I, I find it interesting when you're doing that, that sharing of the desktop, because it's right on the other person's screen you still have that verbal interaction and, mm -hmm. you know, rather than sitting in the back of a classroom, seeing something projected yeah. up on a screen and hoping that that person is not in the back with a pair of headphones. Like my experience in the past teaching at Pyramind is there's inevitably some kids in the back that just want to make beats in the back of the room. <laughs> and you're like up there trying to teach about audio fundamentals. So <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm a big fan of, of the online education thing. Let's talk about Lander. You say you met at South by, so yep. what was the initial discussion as far as you becoming part of their team? So first of all, the reason that they found me there was apparently I had somehow connected to them on LinkedIn and I don't remember doing this at all. I guess I must've liked a post of theirs or something. And this is, they had not even been around for a year. The company was like six months old. So obviously I was mastering at the time, but I didn't know what machine learning was. I'd never heard of it really applied to music production before. So I was completely new in this space. Yeah, they just kind of, we went out to dinner and they sat me down and they explained what it was. And I was like, well, first of all, there's probably a lot of audio engineers that are going to throw stones at you over this. <laughs> and now I've evolved my thinking on that. And I understand, and we'll talk about this, why that shouldn't be the case for most people if they really understand what's going on in the industry. But yeah, I thought it was a cool idea as far as like empowering people who are never going to hire mastering engineers and who don't have the knowledge and or skill to do it themselves. Like there's a big gap there of people. Right. But I didn't think it sounded very good, to be frank. Like, I was like, oh, okay, this is a cool concept, but I mean, I wouldn't use it because I think I can definitely do a better job than this. And most people probably can. But like all tech, that's evolved over the years. I mean, Pro Tools 3 isn't what Pro Tools is now. So, right. and certainly on the machine learning side, data is a big part of that. So, now it's pretty impressive tech, but that's kind of how I got started is not a critic, but somebody who thought there was a market for it, but was skeptical about the quality of it. We just kind of had some discussions over the next four or five months, and I eventually came on board as their senior audio engineer. People may have heard me say this before, but Lander didn't just offer me a job. Like, there were some people in the company who didn't necessarily think that I would be a good fit for the company. And this goes for anything. So I went back to Adrian's studio after South By, and I shot a like a little five-minute video of me talking about Lander. It's just me in the studio, not selling it or anything like that, just saying my opinion on what their product was, where it was good, maybe where it could improve. And I sent that to them, and that's what got me the job. They were like, okay, so he actually gives a shit about what we're doing and put some effort into that. And I tell all my students to do that. If there's something you want, a gig you want, as opposed to coming with your handout, like show interest, do something to set yourself apart. And that's what landed me that job, even though I had no previous experience in any type of a company. Like a lot of people, I was just a freelance engineer, producer, musician. There was definitely some growing pains for me to kind of understand product development and agile development and scrums and all of that stuff, which, uh, yeah. But 
ended up being totally fine. Let's talk about that video that you made for a sec. Was it just you on camera talking about Lander? Yeah, it was me. Um, I just had a friend come over and shoot me in the studio. So it was a lot of me talking live, voiceover, showing me working in the studio while I'm talking about Lander and, and what I do. And that was it. I mean, it's, it still holds up. It's a, a decent video, but it's not like it took me a week to do. I just figured I would try my hand at that. And I had been doing that stuff for a minute. Like, obviously, as a teacher, I was recording a lot of videos for my students that way. Adrian and I would do a lot of product endorsement videos. So I'd be shooting and editing a lot of that kind of stuff. So I was already fairly savvy at that and 3D graphics and that kind of stuff. So it was just kind of an extension of that. Hmm. That's fascinating and kind of a, a good tip for others who are thinking about going to work for a company in this capacity, you know, to try to get an edge over the other candidates. Not the dive into this too much, but I always have people ask me like, you know, I need connections to this person or gosh, I wish I could go do this or that or work at this company or that company. You know, if it's outside of just work, even working with artists, I wish I could get connected to this artist. I'm like, man, you have social media in front of you. You have the ability to comment and put posts and maybe shoot videos or whatever via LinkedIn or Instagram or Twitter or whatever, get to anybody. I mean, LinkedIn, and I've said this a million times, is the absolute secret to my success. Like I just happened to start using LinkedIn. I had no strategy behind that. I was not really super into Twitter and still I'm not super into Twitter because there's so much noise, but I just kind of put a lot of time into LinkedIn. And, and I mean, I do partnerships now with the Abletons and the Avids and the big companies to tiny companies like Baby Audio and companies like that. I mean, LinkedIn is an invaluable resource to get to people. Even if it's not the artist you want to work with, that artist manager is probably there. The label people are probably there. Musicians who want to sync their music. Music supervisors are on LinkedIn. You can get to them. They'll take you more seriously oftentimes than if you hit them up on Instagram or Twitter or cold email them or call them. So there's a lot of ways besides creating content to leverage the channels that we all have access to to create opportunities. Again, it got me the job at Lander. I already said that, right? And then it's led to everything else that I've been able to do. A lot of it I, I owe to LinkedIn. Anyway, I feel like that's a promotion for LinkedIn. But man, people overlook that platform in the music industry. Well, you know, that's funny you say that because at the end of every podcast, I always tell people, connect with me on LinkedIn because yeah. I just find the other social media's kind of amateur hour and yep. they're not really geared towards the business mindset of whatever industry you're in. Well, the reason I know about you and your podcast is from LinkedIn. Is it so really? That's why we're having this conversation. A hundred percent through LinkedIn. Yeah. That's... That just makes me feel very vindicated about my viewpoints <laughs> on that. I'm a user of Instagram, but yeah, LinkedIn, yep. it is a powerful thing because like you say, decision makers go there. People who yeah, are absolutely. thinking from a business perspective are on there. And I think some people in the music industry shy away from that because they're like, oh, that's, that's not artistic. But I think that that's very short-sighted. I agree. And of course, it depends what you're out there looking to get, right? What you, right. you know, who you want to connect with. But you'll find somebody on LinkedIn that's a couple of degrees of separation away from anybody, pretty much. So, and I make all my students make LinkedIn accounts. It's part of any class that I teach. It's like required. And I also talk to them about strategies, about how you approach people. You know, you don't ever send somebody a message out of nowhere. I, I'm all about that seven points of trust thing where you want to get your name in front of them seven times. And at that point, subconsciously, they will have some connection to you, whether that's commenting on something like just liking something that they do consistently, posting, linking them, all that kind of stuff and start to build a rapport remotely, which is effective. And I think it's gotten a lot of my students. I know it's gotten a lot of my students gigs and been helpful, certainly for me. So there you go. Yeah, I would 100% echo your thoughts here on LinkedIn. As a matter of fact, just on an artistic perspective, in fact, I'm looking it up now just to confirm who the engineer was. I was listening to the band The Babies with John Waite, who is the singer. And nice. there's a, a song of theirs called Head First. It's from the album Head First as well. Anyhow, I was like, wow, I wonder who engineered that? Who was the first engineer on that? Because I couldn't find the credits for it. And I thought, wait a second, I'm connected to John Waite, the singer on LinkedIn. I'll just send him a message. And I asked him, I said, who was the engineer on that song? And, it, and he replied back and he said, that was Mike Klink, of course, who went on to produce Appetite for Destruction with Guns N' Roses. And I was like, duh, okay, of course. <laughs> nice. Somebody good like that. Nice. LinkedIn should be sponsoring your show at this point, I think. <laughs> Honestly, that'd be a great idea. Okay, so let's continue on this Lander discussion. So sure. my exposure to Lander in its early days, it was this AI mastering thing. And 
I have spent a considerable amount of time not only mastering records that I've done, but leading up to that, I have spent a lot of time around some really great mastering engineers. And so the idea of this really kind of uh, pissed a lot of people off. Sure. And the discussions were like, oh, that thing that doesn't sound good. And why would you do that? And and this is going back, I don't know, I don't know how many years ago it started, but it really was like something that a lot of us wrote off. Right. So many years pass and I'm sure the algorithms have changed. My understanding from hearing you with on Bobby's podcast is that you've had a hand in shaping some of those algorithms. Is that true? Sure. And that's where I think I said I kind of came in being reasonably okay with the concept of Lander, but not loving how it sounded. And that's a big reason that Lander improved over the years, besides data analysis and blah, 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 all that stuff is the human side of that. So in hiring mastering engineers and outsourcing to very well-known mastering engineers or consultants for the company to listen to the engine, to make tweaks, to master songs, and then use that data to inform the engine on how it could get better. So it might master something, I might master something, and it will look at what the differences are and improve. And we've done, as I said on Bobby's podcast, I don't even tens of thousands of hand-mastered tracks that have been used to tweak this engine across every genre you can think of. That's one of the big things that made it improve. Otherwise, it would just have been the same thing where it was static. And that's allowed us to be really flexible and adaptable to various types of mixes, various genres of mixes, et cetera, et cetera. So it's why Lander is, we invested tens of millions of dollars in this. It's 140 people in Montreal building this. It's not two guys in their basement or something. There's been a lot of time and money that's gone into it. And they've also expanded well past just mastering because now yep. the second time Lander really came back on, on my radar was somebody I was doing some work with was talking about music distribution. Um, and yep. I had no idea that they did music distribution a la like DistroKid and TuneCore and et cetera. And then I knew that there was some other stuff going on there, but I hadn't spent any time in the website. And then you sent me a video to check out, which I watched just before we started talking today. And I was like, wow. This has gone far beyond just the AI mastering thing. This seems to be geared towards giving artists some independence, some autonomy to have control over what they're doing in terms of what they're creating, gives them some tools to augment what their creative process, but it also gives them tools to complete the process. I don't think that there was a mixing thing in there, but there's certainly the mastering thing and mm -hmm. some music creation. So... How do you feel about where Lander was when you first were introduced to them and where they're at now? I mean, it's interesting when I, as I said, when I was first there, it was just the mastering thing. So it was very focused on that. And there's, that can be a blessing and a curse, right? You're addressing a fairly niche market, but you can devote all your resources to that one goal. And now, I mean, we are hands down, I think most other companies would say this, the broadest company in the music tech space, as far as what we offer, which also comes with its own set of problems. You know, when you're literally starting from the creation of an idea through samples and remote and collaboration tools and cloud collaboration tools and plugins that we build now and mastering and just, I mean, it's just everything, right? It's, it's kind of like this turnkey baseline that people can start from and then start adding on stuff from other companies if they want, but you get everything you could effectively need from us. And sometimes people need all of it. And sometimes they just need little chunks and we allow them to cut that up as well. So I like the broad ecosystem platform play that we are now. Personally, I like because you know my whole shtick, whether it's with Lander or outside of Lander as a teacher or as whatever, is to try to lower the barrier of entry for people who want to create music. I mean, it's like sometimes I think we can be in the industry very precious about music creation in a way that if you look at what's been done in shooting video and photography and other things, it's really been democratized in a way that, that music still hasn't quite been. And I think some people are probably happy about that. But I think the wider funnel we can create for people looking at music as a way to express themselves as simply as they do some other ways through social media and whatnot. I think a, you know, a percentage of those people are going to level up and dig in deeper and learn to play an instrument and do all the stuff that really just feeds into the professional side of the industry eventually. And that's kind of where I live. So Lander is a platform that's used by a ton of the highest level composers and mix engineers and all that kind of stuff. But a massive chunk of our user base and a lot of our focus is on that early and aspiring creator. So we try to serve everybody, but not ever talk over anybody's head, if that makes any sense, or build things that aren't usable by somebody who's been messing around with music for three months mm -hmm. or 30 years. It should work for everybody. 
to play devil's advocate, some would argue that, that the kind of wide approach is counter to the whole narrow and deep versus wide and shallow 100%. kind of thought. So I would ask, do you think the company is going too wide and does that affect the product line? Yeah, it's a great question because as a professional engineer, producer, whatever, I'm used to like plugins or whatever tools that I can get in and go as deep as I want and get as crazy complicated as I want. And Lander is not that typically. Most things that we make are intentionally not trying to do that. I think if we tried to go super deep, then we would have a problem, right? The mastering system that we have, we went super deep on. We went crazy invested in that because we did just that for so long. Everything else, obviously, you can't devote that level of time and resources to. But that's why we've been good at partnering with third parties. We've been good at a lot of different things that have allowed us to build robust tools that aren't, like you said, maybe don't go as deep as some other things do, but they serve the widest possible market, if that makes sense. And that's yeah. kind of the sweet spot that we've found ourselves living in. I mean, if as an example, right, we have some mixing plugins. We're releasing a whole bunch of plugins this year, as an example. They work. They're good. They're relatively simple. And if you want something beyond that, here's a partner company that we work with. Go buy their plugin because they're really specialized. Hit up UA, do whatever. Isotope's great. So we try to, again, provide that kind of baseline for people. And then if they say, oh, I want to go deeper, well, we're happy to recommend somebody to you that our users really come to us to curate things for them, if that makes sense. So it's mm -hmm. really like, okay, there's so many freaking options out there in the world. And I, I love sifting through those options, but I'm in the minority on that, right? When you look at the, the millions of people who are making music at all different levels. So to come someplace where you can be told, here's the lander stuff that you need, and here's third-party stuff that we think would work for you through our blog or however we're chatting with our users, that's valuable for them. Well, and quite honestly, I could see that had Lander just stuck to the mastering thing and only the mastering thing, that's only going to take the company so far. That's just going to... You're right, because Lander, I didn't found the company, right? I said I came on like a year anniversary, but first of all, they're focused on mastering, which no one really knows what mastering is for the most part, right? It's this voodoo thing. And they're then trying to combine machine learning to automate parts of the music production. That's like sacrilege to most people. So like, it's a crazy business to get into. But yeah, that would be relatively niche. Even though there are lots of avenues you can go to apply that technology, honestly. And of course, look what happened. I mean, we were one of the first movers applying machine learning and AI to production, and everybody does it now. So it's another thing you have to go broad because that mastering thing, there's a number of competitors. Isotope does it, of course. Waves, everybody's now applying machine learning to sample curation, complementary. Splice just launched COSO, which is great. So it's fine to be the innovator, but you really have to continue to do that. Otherwise, people are just going to move past you. And for us, innovation became this all-inclusive platform as opposed to what's the next thing that no one else has ever done. Well, in our case, it's to offer people everything in one spot, which has never really been done. So it's, it's interesting to pivot from something that was a truly innovative technology to something that's more an innovative platform play. Yeah, I mean, anything you do that's innovative is going to piss people off. I mean... Uh, dude, the second people get mad, I am happy. Like, it's <laughs> when somebody gets mad, hey, I like to diffuse <laughs> their anger and talk to them about, really, where does that come from and why are you angry and what are the things in your life that pissed other people off when you adopted that you just don't think that way about? We all have that, whether it's, Jesus, we all are so lucky to be using DAWs. People hated plugins. They hated DAWs. They, oh, they didn't sound good and or you shouldn't be doing that. It's the same argument that we hear about all this stuff, right? So it's right. like I try to frame it through that lens and people are often like, oh, crap. I'm like the old guy shaking my fist on the lawn about things that other people felt the same way about a generation before. And that's often the case. Yeah. And it's like that, I think, in many industries. And it's expected because there's always going to be people that once they get into anything, making music in a particular way. The band in the garage eventually goes to the studio, maybe gets the record deal, goes to the traditional process. And that's changed. And yep. things like that will continue to change. So innovative technologies will always be the thing that irritates the old men on the lawn bitching about stuff, right? And it's okay to be irritated too. Like there's things that bug me that I'm like, I try to be the most open-minded person to technology possible. And there's, there are triggers for me that I have to like calm myself down about, right? So everyone has that and it's okay to not like something, but it is worth thinking about your perception versus the reality. And I think that's one thing when it comes to AI and music tech. Lander, shoot, Lander used to be controversial. And I guess it still is kind of for people, but now, I mean, people have turned their ire to, 
automated composition stuff, automated. There's a lot of things that happen way earlier in the creative process now that AI and machine learning are applied to that I think people see as actual threats. I mean, the mastering industry didn't die because of Lander, right? If anything, I think it's bigger now than it's been because people understand the value of it and what it is. So people might use Lander. We have dozens of mastering engineers on our site they can hire if they want to do that. We don't care if they use automation or real people. And oftentimes people use both. So that's all fine. But that tech is creeping into other areas, I think, that are more concerning for people. Well, and if you're somebody who is generating a ton of material and you need it turned around really quick, I mean, Lander makes a ton of sense. It's why film composers are super into it, right? I mean, for they're having to turn out so many versions of every cue before approval, right? So it's like, and I didn't really think that would be a thing, but man, we have some composers who absolutely love it. And that's what they do. They still go hire a mastering engineer at the end of the day at the same stage they would normally hire a mastering engineer, but everything prior to that is Lander. So let's move past Lander for a bit. I want to talk more about you. One of the things that I'm curious about, because you know I've looked at your LinkedIn profile a few times and talking with you now, the thing I'm trying to get my head around is how you manage your time because you're doing quite a few things. So do you do those other things out of survival or interest or both? What drives you? Boy, I could be better at at time management for sure. I'm basically all in all the time. So I'm one of those, like I think a lot of people in the industry, but I may even take it to an extreme where it's like, don't go on vacation for 10 years, work seven days a week. And I don't do it for money. Money has never, ever been a focus of what I do, or at least not for a long time. So like, yes, I I work for Lander. I consult for some other companies. I love that. I talk to probably five or six startups a week and I don't take anything from them. I just like to see what's kind of coming in the industry. I do a lot in the Web3 space and I'm taking some advisory positions and things. I'm just passionate about that stuff. So in the teaching thing as well, yeah, I'm I'm in a whole bunch of different stuff. Almost all of it is just because I'm interested in it. You know what I mean? And I get paid for some of it and I don't get paid for some of it. And I kind of love it all the same. So having said that, I need to, and I'm actively trying to prune a little bit the things that I'm involved in to focus a bit more on that. I mean, I'm 45, I'm having my first child in a month, a month and a half, something like that. So it's like, I realize that this kind of self-centered life that I've led where technology has been the thing that drives every aspect of my life. It won't always necessarily be that way. So I'll probably kind of prune some things back, or at least I'm going to attempt to. Part of that for me is that I get to give opportunities to other people. I love connecting people, or if I have students who are good at something, and there's something that I might be interested in, but I think they could do now because I don't have the time I can make that connection and, and that sort of thing. So it's all good. Wow. Get ready for some sleep deprivation is all I can tell you about the kid thing. (laughs) I think I've been priming myself. I've been preparing myself for years for that, but it's about, I understand it's about to go to another, another level that I've not experienced. So we shall see. Good Lord. So you're basing yourself out of Los Angeles, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm these days almost, especially post pandemic, pretty much a hundred percent of the time in LA, just off a sunset strip behind the whiskey a go-go. I've got a house and a studio. Oh, wow. Oh yeah. So, I mean, I'm looking over Hollywood right now as I talk to you. So it's, it could be worse. Yeah, it could be worse. Do you spend a lot of time at the whiskey? You know, sadly enough, I spent more time at the whiskey before I moved here six years ago than I have now. When some friends bands come in town, I'll go down there. But no, I walk by it every single day. I've probably been to the whiskey five times in five or six years. But I I do go to Rainbow Room occasionally. Jerry Cantrell, guitar player for Alice in Chains, loves the Rainbow Room. So like I went there for my birthday and some other stuff. So like those are more of the places where you can kind of like sit down and chill and it's not just music all the time, but spots that I, that I hang out at. Well, I'm going to include a link in the show notes to your website, which is roland-studios.com. That's R-O-W-L-A-N-D which I'm looking at right now. And I think I'm looking at the view that you have through the glass. Oh, probably, yeah. Which is super cool. Is there anything that we missed that you may want to touch on before we end it? Atmos mixing is something we could have gotten into because I just built a facility in Santa Monica, an Atmos studio, and have been doing a bunch of stuff there. Tell me a little bit about that because I've built an Atmos room here, which Dolby has signed off on. And I'm yeah, same here. really enjoying the process. I don't know about you, but... I had to take it in little chunks because it was just like too much for my brain. And so it's like a huge plate of food. It's like, you're, you're not going to eat it all at once. You're going to start <laughs> at one end of the plate and work your way around. Yeah. So tell me about this place that you built. The Atmos thing I thought was interesting, but I'm not an immersive guy, right? I come from stereo world pretty much exclusively. 
for my career. So a, a buddy of mine who also graduated from MTSU has been out in LA mixing film trailers for 20 years. So he does all like the Spider-Man No Way Home stuff, the vet, I mean, just big, massive trailers, but that's what he focuses on. So he's been mixing in surround for 20 years and Atmos obviously for quite a while as well. So he and I partnered up to build a room, and I think we're about to build another one in Santa Monica, which is where he lives. So I go to him for that kind of stuff. And yeah, it's been great, man. We've only, it's only been up for, geez, about two months, but I mean, we've done a bunch of cool, we just did a Flow Rider track that Manny Mariquin mixed stereo. And then we took to Atmos and, and I mastered it for Manny as well, which is cool. Like just a bunch of different stuff. And there's so much work in the Atmos space. I was on the phone with somebody the other day who called it a gold rush a little bit because there's so much work in such a little period of time and people are kind of flocking to it, which is totally true. I mean, the labels are, are trying to convert a significant chunk of their back catalog to this. And we'll see what how that plays out. I mean, you look at where this is, is heading. Like if you remember... Apple was did the mastered for iTunes thing, right? I think most people probably listening to this may know what that is, where they were really trying to amass a 24-bit catalog of music, and they did that through this mastered for iTunes Apple digital program that I've done a ton of those tracks. And eventually, then they allowed those to be streamed, right? We all knew they were kind of amassing a catalog of high-def stuff so they could level up Apple Music. This is kind of similar, where they're, they're amassing a catalog of Atmos slash Apple Spatial. So as they move into augmented reality glasses and things like that, they have that content ready to go. Now, Apple has not told me that, but I mean, I think everybody pretty much knows that. I think we can, yeah, I think that's easy to connect the dots on that one. Yes. I'd love to hear more about your experience at some point, but it's interesting talking to artists versus talking to labels about their desire for Atmos, because how many people listening to this podcast or watching this right now have sat in a proper Atmos room and listened to music? I bet you very few people have done that. Very few. Yeah. I make it a, a, a habit to try to regularly bring people over to my room to listen. Other engineers, artists, just to say, what do you think? And they all walk away just minds blown, really like, when can we do something like this? Right. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's remix a track that we mix together. And I have the same experience. I bring people in, even people I'm like, oh God, they're going to be a little skeptical of this. No, they're just like a kid in a candy store. The problem, of course, it is how does that translate to the average listener, which it doesn't necessarily really. Binaural technology is good, but it's not great. And I don't know about you, but the hardest part about mixing, mixing Atmos is a hell of a lot easier than mixing in stereo. You're no longer having to carve things up and fit them between two speakers. Just it's so fun to mix an Atmos where it's not fun, at least for me is really having that what sounds good in the room translate binaurally to something that is an evolved version of the stereo mix. I mean, you have so much Atmos music out there that sounds freaking terrible when you listen to it on headphones, because if you just focus on it in the room and kind of spot check it on headphones, you're good luck with that. I mean, it's taken a lot to develop techniques, at least on our end. And I've heard this from F. Reed Shippen and Derek Ali and a bunch of other people to really get stuff to pop in both. And that's the secret sauce, because even Apple says, or Dolby, excuse me, 85% of people are listening on headphones. Very few people are even going to listen to music on a soundbar. So you got to hit both sides of it. Yeah. Well, I've said it before on this show, my prediction is the smart speaker technology will come to a point where, and in fact, Apple's getting ready to re-release the HomePods that they had discontinued. Right. I think, and nobody's told me this, but I think that it's <laughs> going to be, hey, we'll sell you a HomePod or you can buy our Atmos setup and have an Atmos system right there and for very little money, easy to configure, not for mixing, of course, but for, for consumers. Yeah, sure. And I think that's where we're going to start to see divergence from the soundbar technology into the nice. smart speaker technology. That's my prediction. We'll see if I'm right. That sounds plausible. But the reality is, even with that, it'll be the same as it was with 5.1, the same that it was with Quad. No one's listening to music sitting in one spot. So that's the challenge is that the headphone experience will still trump that, unfortunately, because I think when people listen to it in a room, it's amazing. But, you know, once you're walking around with AR glasses on and you are looking at a visual and you're hearing, that'll be a kind of a different thing. But it's just a challenge. We're just not geared to sit in one spot, not look at a screen and listen to music for very long. So it's yeah, the, the atmosphere. It's interesting. It's interesting. We'll have to see where it goes. I'm I'm trying to stay super positive about it. And so <laughs> me far, too. having built a studio, me too. Oh, yeah, <laughs> super yeah. Positive well, about it. Yeah, I'm, I'm all in at this point, so we'll have to yeah, see too. where it goes. Well, great to meet you. Thanks so much for making time for me and putting up with my questions and criticisms and devil's advocate position on Lander. <laughs> 
I think what they're doing is super cool, and I think it's definitely involved. It's good to know that there's someone smart at the helm like you over there that's that's helping to drive where that kind of technology goes. Very much like Kerry Thomas at, oh, man. at Apple. He's amazing. Glad to hear that you're at Lander and that, that you're helping it. Just to, to close on that, with any of this kind of technology, regardless of what it is, but let's just say the AI machine learning thing, always take a look at who's behind it. Tech can be used for good stuff or bad stuff. It can be used to try to eradicate audio engineers or composers or whatever, but it's really about the companies that are, some of them I like, some of them I don't like, but it's always worth taking a peek. Absolutely. Once again, audience, I will put a link to Daniel's website in the show notes, as well as his LinkedIn profile. Please, that's so more important. <laughs> please, please connect with him on LinkedIn as well as myself. Thanks again, Daniel. Appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate the time. Okay, take care. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LPUNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LPUNF. Daniel Rowland here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. I want to remind you to download the 15 simple tips to help you survive as an audio professional. These are tips from former WCA guests Andrew Sheps, Eric Valentine, Steve Albini, and Jack and Dino. You can do that at workingclassaudio.com slash 15tips. That's right. I want to thank the crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plo in the editing, Cliff Truesdale in the Working Class Audio theme song, and the magical Chuck Smith and his voice at the top of the show. Connect with me on LinkedIn, and until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.